Take our Bibles, turn over to the book of Matthew, chapter 22. Matthew, chapter 22 tonight. Matthew, chapter 22. Let's go ahead and um, take a look at this passage, beginning in verse 34. We're going to read through verse 40 tonight. 20, uh, 22, Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. <clears throat> All right, let's go ahead and begin reading there. I'll read aloud. You read silently with me, if you would. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, there's one problem right there, right? <laughs> Asked him a question, tempting him and saying, I hope there's no lawyers here. If there is, let me know. I'd love to visit you and have you join our church. <clears throat> Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Earlier in the chapter, and before he had addressed this particular question, <clears throat> the Sadducees had come to him with their, their own question. You know, everybody's always trying to trip Jesus up. He's always trying to get him to fumble over his words or make a mistake of sorts. And they had come to him asking him about uh, a situation. And the situation was something to this effect, that there was a man that had a wife and that particular man um, died, and his wife, they have no children, and, 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 and so he marries the next brother, and then he marries the next brother, and he marries the she marries the next brother, and pretty soon she's married seven of these brothers. Okay, now again, it was a custom in those days that there was not offspring, then the brother would marry the woman, and that way they could raise seed to the family name, but... In this particular case now, there's seven brothers, and each of them, uh, I'm we'll getting a ring back here, brother. Each of them um, was her husband. Well, that, that, that created a real problem for them. They're saying, well, now in the resurrection, in the end, whose wife will she be? Husband number one, two, three, four, five, six, or seven. Of course, Jesus, he just blows them out of the water. I mean, he really nails it. He puts it right there where it needs to be, where the rubber meets the road, and the Bible says that he silenced the Sadducees. Jesus is always silencing the Sadducees. And, and again, you may be saying, well, what was the answer? Well, here was basically the answer. Let me just share it. <coughs> here was the simple answer. You guys don't have a clue what you're talking about. You don't even know what the Bible teaches. The fact is, nobody's going to be married. There you go. And they were like, what? Wow. Wow. He silenced them. Just silenced them. And I know I just, some of you are going, what? Yeah, I'm sorry. I just silenced you too. But um, <clears throat> the, the fact is, is that they, 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 he silenced them. He silenced them. And, and now all of a sudden, <laughs> this, this lawyer asked him a question. Notice the Bible says, tempting him. 
Again, I'm glad he asked the question because we learn a tremendous amount of truth from his response. But it was never meant to be something he shared necessarily. But because of this question, this tempting question, this question to try to trip him up, he shares this wonderful truth with us, and we learn this this nugget of gold that we can now carry with us through life. If there is one thing that you and I would agree on today, it'd be that God loves us and that we are to love Him. I don't think anybody would question that. God loves us and we're to love God. That's real simple, very basic. Our passage makes it perfectly clear when it says, Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Well, that pretty much nails it down, doesn't it? That doesn't leave a whole lot of room for debate. So how do we love God in a way that's Christ-honoring? Okay, we know we're supposed to love God, but how do we do that practically? How do we do it in a way that honors the Lord Jesus Christ? And tonight, I just want to take a few minutes, you know, kind of let your hair down, relax a little bit. And let's just look at three ways to love God tonight. I just want to share three ways to love God tonight. Real simple. Real simple. So before we get started with those three ways to love God, in order to obey the command of Scripture to love the Lord thy God, with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, let's have a word of prayer and invite Him in our midst. Father, Again, we've already prayed and invited you here, but Lord, we especially want you with us tonight. Lord, we would waste our time if we met just tonight with one another. We want to meet with you. Lord God of heaven, I pray that your presence would be mightily felt in this place. May it be very evident that, Father, you are here in our midst. And Lord, may you just reveal yourself in a very tangible way to speak to our heart through the word of God. May you speak encourage us in the things of Christ tonight. And may we, Father, as the psalmist said, be glad when they said unto us, let us go into the house of the Lord. Father, we could be in a number of places tonight. But Lord, we're here. We're here with a purpose to glean from you and your word. Now, Father, please fulfill our desires as we seek to praise and honor you in everything that's said and done. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <coughs> Number one. How do, we, how do we love God? Number one, love God with your head. Well, I'm gonna, I told you it's going to be really practical. Love God with your head. What do you mean? Learn of Him. Learn of Him. You know, we sing a chorus. It goes like this. Jesus loves me. This I know for the... Bible tells me so. The Bible tells me so. See, learning about the Lord is something that God tells us is priceless to the believer. And we learn about Him. And as we learn about Him, it betters us and it enables us to love Him. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
In John chapter 5, verse 39, we read, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. When you open this book, when you begin to read it, when you begin to study it and meditate on it, memorize it, you learn of Jesus Christ. You begin to get a picture of who He is and what He is. As a matter of fact, in the book of Philippians chapter 3, turn there if you would please, Philippians chapter 3 verse 8. We're going to see what the Apostle Paul had to say about this particular issue. We know once again that this passage is important in Scripture, not only because it's in the Word, but remember we use this portion of Scripture once again as a theme for our church one year. Philippians chapter 3 verse 8 through 10. The Bible says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being made conformable unto His death. Again, the Apostle Paul has just offered up his resume, and he begins to share all of these things that he had possessed and that he had experienced in his life. And yet he says, I throw it all away. It is nothing but dung to me. It means absolutely nothing to me, because ultimately I realize it is the grace of God, not my own personal works and effort, that brings favor to me by, uh, from God. And then he goes on to say, but if there's something I'm going to do, if the reality is, if I'm going to ultimately please God and honor God, then I have to throw away myself, die to self, and do something very important. Know Him. i got to know Him. It's not about knowing me, necessarily. It's not about understanding the world. It's not about recognizing needs in this, this place we call the universe. It's about knowing Him. And if I can only get a handle on God, then it'll all be worth it. Everything will be worth it. I'll get rid of everything if it takes everything. I'll die to self. I'll get rid of all my gold and my, my, my uh, uh, what do you want to call it, um, uh, positions and prestige and uh, just prosperity. I don't want any of it, but I want to know him, that I may know him. So important. And so the Apostle Paul is making it very clear that he has to know God. You know what? When we learn about God, there are some things that happen in our life. Let me give you a couple. His holiness deflates your pride. When you begin to search the scriptures and begin to learn of him, all of a sudden you recognize how holy, righteous God is. He is perfect without sin. And as you begin to view God who is holy in your mind's eye, you can't help but have it deflate your own pride. It just happens. It just happens. I want to learn to love God. Well, here's one way. Learn of Him. Learn of Him. Because as you learn of Him, you'll deflate your own pride. You become smaller in your own eyes as you see God larger. Not only that, but His goodness directs your gratitude. You take God and you begin to read and learn of Him. You recognize how good God is. You can't help it. People often are like, well, I'm waiting for God to do something so I can recognize His goodness. No, get in the Word of God and you'll read it. You'll understand it. You'll learn who He is and what He is. And He is a good God. 
See, we're so short-sighted. Everything's about what happens to me today. Well, I, just, I, I have a financial need today. I have an emotional need today. I, I have a spiritual need today. God says, listen, when you get in this book and you start learning of me, you realize that I'm faithful and I will meet needs and I am good. But sometimes it's not on your timetable, it's on mine. And we say, man, God's good. Look what he did for Abraham. Look what he did for Moses. Look what he did for David. Look what he did for the New Testament saint. Look what he did. And he can do that for me. God is good. And boy, he begins to convince us of his goodness. And as he, he convinces, of us of, uh, convinces us of his goodness, it directs our gratitude, which is certainly deserved of uh, by us and from us. And he deserves our gratitude. So his holiness deflates our pride. His goodness directs our gratitude. But finally, his person demands our praise. When you begin to learn of God, his attributes, his characteristics, his qualities, you can't help but recognize and say to yourself, praise the Lord. Praise God. He is so unbelievable. Love God with your head. Learn of Him. You know, the more I learn about God, the more I learn about myself. The more I learn about myself. You know what I learn about myself, the more I learn about Him? One, I learn that I'm nothing short of a wretched man. That's it. I'm nothing short of a wretched man. Look if you would in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. We've already noted it. We've already alluded to it. But look at it for yourself for just a moment. <clears throat> when I begin to learn about him, I can't help but learn about myself that I am nothing short of a wretched man. The Bible says in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, but as he, 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Again, that word conversation is more than just your words. It has to do with your lifestyle, your actions, your behavior. It covers the whole gamut. Be holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Man, when I think about the holiness of God, I can't help but say, You are wretched and miserable. I mean, do you get to that place in your life as you draw nigh to God, as you open the Word of God, as you consider His characteristics, His qualities, His attributes, holiness being one of the main ones, perfection, to think and view yourself in light of God's perfection. Oh my, how wicked and sinful we appear to ourselves. I learned that I'm nothing short of a wretched man as I learn about God. But not only do I learn that, but I also learn that I'm not sufficient in myself in the least. I'm not sufficient in myself in the least. Again, as I begin to learn about God, I realize how absolutely essential He is in my life in this area. 2 Corinthians 3, 5 says, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves. Our sufficiency is of God. Paul the Apostle again is speaking, and he's sharing this information. He's saying, listen, 
Listen, as, as much as we have done, as often as we've gone soul winning, as many souls that have been saved, as many churches that we have planted, as many ministries that we have, thri- uh, have, have begun and are now thriving, the reality is it wasn't our ability, it wasn't our strength, it wasn't by our own counsels or wisdom. No, not at all. It was all God. And we learned that. We learned that as we learn about Him. And then as we learn about Him, we learn about ourselves that we're nothing short of a wretched man, that we're not sufficient in ourselves in the least. And then I learned that I can do nothing, nothing without him. Nothing. Take your Bible, turn over the book of John, chapter 15, verse 5. One of the great passages in the New Testament. (coughs) John, chapter 15, verse 5. He says here, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. That's a pretty emphatic statement. Now, I don't think we believe that, though. I know that I don't sometimes, or at least if I, I may know it here, but I don't know it here. You understand what I'm saying? There have been times I go out and make a visit I didn't even actually pray about. You know, I knock a door and I don't even think for a moment. I just know I've done this a million times. Not a million, probably 999,000. <laughs> but you know where I'm going with that, right? I mean, if, we, if we were honest with ourselves, sometimes God really isn't included. You know, we used to, we used to have those things, you know, uh, like when I was a kid, all, all of us brothers, you know, there's four of us, and we'd sit there and say, okay, first one of the cars, last one of the cars is a rotten egg, everybody included, no changes. You ever do one of them, no changes? You know, everybody included, no changes? We used to do those all the time. Because, you know, you say, everyone included, and then they go, oh, uh-uh, except for me. Uh-uh, and you say, no, no changes. Everyone included. Everyone included. And you know what? The thing is today is that there's not one thing we can do without Him. No changes. No changes. No changes. Not only that, but, so the more I learn about God, the more I learn about myself, but also the more I learn about God, the more I love about others. The more I love about others. You want to love God? Love Him with your head. Learn about Him. Why? Because you're going to learn more about yourself, and you're also going to learn, uh, or, or the, more, the more you're going to love others. <clears throat> That's important, isn't it? <clears throat> you know, as I consider how he unconditionally, how he unconditionally loves me, even though I have nothing to offer him in return, nothing. I know we think we do sometimes, don't we? We think we have some. Can somebody turn on the air around here, could you please? It's obviously not on. I can see people waving things, and I think they're waving at me, and because my eyes are bad, I want to wave back. So we'll get that air on. That way we don't, we're not uncomfortable for the next 10 minutes. <coughs> okay. So anyway, so what we find then is when we learn about God, we, we, the more we, I love other people. And, and when I consider... His unconditional love for me, although I have nothing to offer him, and that's true with all of us, whether we believe that or not. 
It doesn't matter how young you are, how good looking you are. It doesn't matter how talented you are or how athletic you are. You have nothing at all to offer God who's already holy and already created everything anyway. But what I do is, I, uh, what happens to me is, I, as a result of that, I find myself more patient with others. <clears throat> I find myself considerate of their plight. I find myself loving people more because God loves me when I don't deserve it. How did I come to that conclusion? Because I learn about Him. And it helps me to love others. Not only that, but the more I learn about God, <clears throat> the more I listen to those I love. You say, what? Yeah. You know what? It's wonderful to have the ear of God, isn't it? It is wonderful to have the ear of God. And what I mean by that is, I mean, his schedule, infinitely busier than mine. His time, much more demanded of. His responsibilities, they weigh far greater than mine, whatever. <clears throat> Still, he takes the time to listen to me whenever I speak to him. That's amazing to me. <clears throat> oh, I'm really busy. I don't have time to listen to you, hus uh, wife. I don't have time to listen to you, husband. I don't have time to listen to you, children. Aren't you glad God listens to you? He's infinitely more busy, <clears throat> more burdened than you or I. And yet he takes the time. But he's God. Oh, I know. But think about how many people he has to listen to. <clears throat> I mean, really, what a blessing it is to think that God would show me that kind of I don't know, that kind of blessing. I mean, just allow me to talk to him anytime I want. <clears throat> and if he affords me such attention simply because he loves me, how can I deny the same consideration of those I love? German-born philosopher, theologian Paul Tillich made this statement, the first duty of love is to listen. <clears throat> the first duty of love is to listen. If you've got somebody with you and you're dating and they don't really listen to you, get rid of them. Because if they're not willing to listen to you now, I promise you, they won't listen to you later. You understand what I'm saying? And the first duty of love is to listen. Why? Because the reality is, until I know someone, I cannot properly love them. Nor do I know how they want to love me. <clears throat> Husbands, the Bible tells us, are admonished to know our wives. We're admonished to know our wives. In 1 Peter 3, 7, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Dwell with them according to knowledge. God says in every relationship, a key is knowing the individual or person that you're in a relationship with. You can't possibly love someone the way you should until you know them. It's as simple as it is. <clears throat> if we truly want to love God with all our heart, with all our might, with all our mind, with all our soul, we must learn of Him. We need to do it with our heads. Number two... 
Love God, not only with your head, but love God with your heart. Love God with your heart. <clears throat> what does that mean? Long for Him. Long for God. See, the Bible expresses this idea by using the word thirst or thirsteth. If you look through your Bible, you'll find verses that say those things. For instance, Psalm chapter 42, verse 2, the psalmist says, My soul thirsteth for God. For the living God, when shall I come and appear before Him? My soul thirsteth for God. In Psalm chapter 63, verse 1, a psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah, he goes on to say, O God, Thou art my God, early will I seek Thee. My soul thirsteth for Thee. My flesh longeth for Thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. In the book of Psalm, once again, the psalmist makes the statement, it's very similar to what we just read. He says, I stretch forth my hands unto Thee. My soul thirsteth after thee in a thirsty land. Thirsting after God. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, we consider the Beatitudes. <clears throat> he says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Thirsting after God is something that seems to have been lost in the lives of many believers. <clears throat> There's so many other things that occupy our, our time, our energy, our minds today. Let's just, you know, be very honest about it. Um, <clears throat> we're bombarded with advertisers whose sole purpose is to create a thirst in our lives for their products and their services. Every time you watch television, every time you listen to a radio blurb, they're always trying to develop a thirst in you for their product. It's not trying to get you to buy the product, but to desire or thirst for it. And if they can get you to thirst for their product, you will purchase it. If they can create a need in your life, you'll go out to fill that need. And that's what an advertiser's job is to do, to create a need so that you say, wow, I really need that. You don't, but you feel like you do, <clears throat> and so you run out and buy it. And in most cases, as I said, it's not really a need. It's just a desire. It's a thirst that they have created in us. But the Bible teaches us that God is who we ought to be thirsting after. God is who we should be desiring more than anyone or anything else. And yet that is an art or that is a concept that, as I said, has seen, seems to have been lost, it seems. Even our young men going into ministry are about a professional pursuit today not a spiritual apparition. They don't want to get into the presence of God. They just want to have a position for God. No, you have to thirst after God. You've got to want to draw nigh to Him. You've got to be willing to pay a price to be in His presence. And yet today, we live our lives kind of on the, on the edge, God being on His throne, and we kind of walk as close as we can to the world and try to use it as a tightrope, and try to stay in balance with God and the world, when in reality we ought to be running into His arms as far away from the world as we can. Instead of wondering what I can get away with, we ought to be saying, God, I just want to be with you. <clears throat> God 
God longs for His children to cling to Him and lean on Him consistently and constantly. The psalmist, again, had an insatiable appetite and a thirst for God Himself. And you know, David, <clears throat> let's face it, he had a lot going, didn't he? It, you know, really, David had more going than any of us do in the room. I mean, here David was, ultimately the king of Israel. But even before that, he's a young man that was ordained, or should I say anointed to be the king, and he's on the run from the king. He's running for his life at times. And then ultimately he arrives at the place where God ultimately wanted him to be as king, and he's, he has the whole kingdom to think about. He's trying to juggle the responsibilities of being a king, a father, a husband, all those things. And yet David says, I stretch forth my hands unto thee. My soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land. There's not one person, there's not one thing that I desire more than you, Lord. When we get to that place, then things start to click. With our relationship with God and with others. We feel sometimes, if we're not careful, that the thirst for God like that is going overboard. That will be too radical or fanatical, or that will, will, um, I don't know, lose our families. We'll have to say, <clears throat> I don't care about my kids anymore. All I care about is God. My wife, too bad. You don't get any of me because all I care about is God. So I have to be very careful to have the right balance, preacher. You know what the right balance is? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. All thy might and all thy soul. Wait a second, that's what God says, though. No, but you don't understand. I've got to balance my love between my wife and my God and my children and my God and my work. And my God, it's always God that gets thrown in last. It's always like, you know, I gotta have, I gotta have time for my wife, but then I gotta have time for God. No, you ought to have time for God. You'll be amazed how much your wife will appreciate that love for God if you have it the right way. <clears throat> now I know there's some radical nutcases out there. There are people out there that go overboard on everything. The Bible says that we do all things in moderation. All he's saying is there's balance in everything, I understand. But you know, it's funny to me how we already want to have balance and we have nothing to balance it with. We don't even have that, that concern. We're not spending hours reading our Bibles. We're not spending hours out soul winning every week. We're not spending hours teaching Sunday school and traveling and sharing the gospel. We're not spending hours and hours. We're not, over, we're not spending more time studying the Word of God than we are going to work or that we are even watching television. No, no, but yet we've got it so worried we cannot get over, over, too overly unbalanced with God in our life. Where's that coming from? <clears throat> I mean, who really is that out of balance around here? If anything, it's the other way we're out of balance. We don't have God enough in our, we're not thirsting enough for God in our life. And listen, I, I'm pointing at me. You say, well, preacher, you ought to. No, every Christian ought to. That's the believer's responsibility, the thirst after God. Every one of us ought to be. I want you to consider the importance 
of water. Because when you think of thirsting, it has to do with water. But think about water in comparison or in light of your body. When your body fails to retain the right amount of water, we call it dehydration. <clears throat> now, it is the water in our body that determines the vitality, the strength, and even the energy uh, that we need for daily living. Again, think about some of these facts. The human body is two-thirds water. The body absorbs cold water faster than hot water. By the time you're 70 years old, get this, this is amazing, you will have required one and a half million gallons of water. So we could say if that practically that everybody 70 and over is a camel. <coughs> I mean, one and a half million gallons of water. Is that amazing? <coughs> I, I couldn't believe it when I read that. Even if it's wrong. Even if it's only half that, that's amazing to me. Studies show that increasing water consumption can decrease fat deposits. That's a good reason to drink water. Um, water is a natural appetite suppressant as well. There you go. So we're taking pills to thwart our appetite. Drink water. Not only does it thwart your appetite, but it's good for you. If you lose 2% of your body's water supply, your energy will decrease by 20%. That's amazing to me. Lose 2% of your body's water supply and you decrease in energy by 20%. A 10% decrease in water, you'll be unable to walk. A 20% decrease, <coughs> well, you're dead. That's amazing to me. John chapter 7, verse 37 says, In the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. <clears throat> and Jesus cries that same cry to you and I today. I mean, in this particular case, if we hope to remain in the race and live a life more abundant, then we have to thirst after Christ. Even as our bodies demand water in which to survive, our souls demand Christ in order to live. It's so important. So what we find today is, that how can we love God? We said, number one, love God with your head. Learn of Him. Number two, love God with your heart. Wrong for Him. And then number three, love God with your hands. Live for Him. Live for Him. It's one thing to hear the words, I love you but an entirely different thing to see them in action, isn't it? How many times have we heard about young ladies or young fellows who got roped in because somebody told them, oh, I love you, I love you, and they didn't show their love. They lied. How many times have we seen and heard of situations where, you know, we, we use that word love today very flippantly. We really do. I mean, I... I think we need to be careful, especially our young people when they're dealing with relationships. Let's face it. And again, I, I understand it's, it's, it's kind of a thing to do these days, but you need to be very careful. I'm not trying to be an old fuddy-duddy, but, you know, 
it, it happens to the best of the young people as well as it does the worst. They want to rush right into that word, love. Man, I'll tell you something. I, I wasn't really great at it, but if I could have, I, I would have put tape over every one of my kids' mouths. If I could have done it, I'd have put tape over their mouths. I, I can't do that, obviously. They're, they're going to say stupid things. I mean, what, what in the world? A 14-year-old telling another 14-year-old, I love you. Are you kidding me? I, what? Now, I know someone's going to say, I fell in love with my husband when we were only 13. I understand that. But what's the point of talking about love when you say you love somebody? You know what you're really saying? And now I know this is going to sound crude, but I, this is how I teach my kids. It, and again, whether they listen or not, that's their business. But here's what I told them. You tell somebody you love them, they drive out and get in a car accident the next day, lose both legs, you're still marrying them. There you go. Honey, I love you. She runs out, gets in a car accident, she's a paraplegic. I'm out of here. Huh, you didn't love them. No, no. No, there, no, there's a difference between being like fondly affectionate and liking very much and enamored with. But to love someone has nothing to do with what they can do for you. It's what you can do for them. Don't be just running around yelling that word out, talking to everybody. I love her. He loves me. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, we'll find out. Yeah, we'll find out. No, I, I'm just telling you. Don't use the word like that because there's a difference between the words and the action. And God the Father and God the Son loved us in a very tangible and very concrete manner. Concrete manner. God the Father in John 3.16, we could all quote it, couldn't we? Let's do it together. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life, John 3, 16. Right? We've got to make sure we do it just like we do it, VBS and all that. Now again, God loved the world. But not only God the Father, but God the Son loved us. In John chapter 10, verse 14 through 18, turn there if you would, please. John chapter 10. I mean, we're talking about very tangible love here. Tangible. Concrete. Here we go. Look at what it says here in John chapter 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice. There shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. I love the fact that Jesus Christ willingly laid down His life for me. And He laid down His life for you. Now that is love. There is no greater love than to the man give his life for a friend. Jesus Christ laid down his life 
for you and I. Very tangible, very concrete expression of love. He went to the very edge. He didn't stop short of his own life even to once again demonstrate his love for you and I. Love God with your hands. Live for Him. Be willing to sacrifice self. We look over here uh, of this, we think about the example that Jesus Christ gives us, this unconditional, this sacrificial love. He says that that is also demanded by husbands toward their what? Wives. You know, it's kind of funny, isn't it? Every time we talk about Ephesians 5, what's the first thing that pops in your mind? Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. That's what everybody wants to think, right? Every guy's like, yes. Yes. Sick of preacher. But that's not really the essence of the passage. You know, when you really think about it, it's not what we do for God that's the big thing. It's what God did for us. And you know what? In a marriage, God is likening the marriage to the relationship between Christ and the church. Therefore, the real responsibility doesn't lie on the church. The real responsibility lies on the God who saved them, Jesus Christ. So guess what, fellas? When it's really said and done, if there's ever been a side that's weighted a little more than the other, it ought to be the man. Because it's always God who gives more than what he receives. You know what? He says, husbands, let's see what he says here in Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. How did he give himself? Completely. If she can't, then I won't. If she doesn't, I'm out of here. Oh, I see. Wait a second. Did you not say, I love you? Did you say those words? And you can just, that apathetically, lackadaisically, cast her off because your needs aren't being met in your own opinion, from your own perspective. She's really cantankerous. She's really changed since we got married, like you haven't. I'm, I'm not trying to be mean, and I know there are exceptions to the rule, and everybody wants to believe they're the exception. I know that. But I'm telling you today that we enter into this thing called marriage way too lax. We don't think it through. You young people are stupid. If you think you can meet a girl and just rush into marriage and everything's supposed to be fine. That is about as dumb as they used to say. We say, you're about as dumb as a rock. That's what they used to say to us. You're dumb as a rock. And we'd go, I hate that, but it's true. You don't realize that until you're a little older. But I'm going to tell you something, young guys. You're going to be tempted to want to love and just marry the first girl that comes along. That's what's going to happen to you. You'd be tempted to do that. And, and I mean, you're going to want to say those words. You're going to want to hear those words, I love you. Let me tell you something. Are you willing to say those words? 
you better be willing to treat her, stand by her, commit yourself to her like Christ did the church. And listen, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about, I would die for her. Well, why don't you get a job first and support her? Oh, I love her. I'd die for her. Why don't you live for her first? Why don't you meet her needs? Why don't you provide for her? Why don't you put a roof overhead? You know, why don't you try that side of it first? You say, but I can't do that. I don't have a job. I'm 12. Well, you shouldn't be saying that then. And I'm not trying to downplay that kids have feelings. I'm not. But no kid should have the kind of feelings that say, I want to get married tomorrow. You realize how tough it's going to be to stay pure? And even if you just waited until you were 18 to get married, you got six years to say no. Don't put yourself in that position. That's crazy. The expression of self-sacrifice is the standard for our lives in Christ Jesus. We're to give ourselves without reservation to the Lord, to the very one who gave himself without reservation to us. That's the standard. Well, I'm going to come to church at least once a week. I'm going to read my Bible through in a lifetime. I mean, let's just be honest. The level of commitment is unbelievable. We want to say, I love you to Jesus, but we're not even willing to live for him. Now, I'm not, I'm not pointing at everybody saying that. I'm just saying, in general, as Christians, we've got this distorted view of what it means. If you gave to your wife the time, the finances, the attention that you give to God, how happy would she be with you? And vice versa, ladies. If you spend as much time with your husband as you do God in the privacy of your personal life, would he be happy? If you spend as much time intimately with God as you do your husband, would your husband be thrilled to death with the time you spend with him? I'm just saying, let's just be honest about our lives here a little bit. We have this distorted view of what God says is okay. We look at God like he's somebody different than normal people. But listen, God created us with the desires, the longings, and the, the personalities we have. That means he's got some longings and desires and personalities. God wants you. He doesn't need you, but he wants you. He doesn't need me, but thank God he wants me. And we've got a got to live for him. Live for him. And it's more than just going to church once a week or twice a week or three times even. It's having a relationship with him. Early this year in May, <clears throat> two terrorists attacked and beheaded a British soldier in broad daylight outside his barracks. The Telegraph, a British paper, reported that a mother and a Cub Scout leader, <clears throat> woman by the name of Ingrid, Loya Kennett, age 48, confronted the terrorists immediately after the grisly murder. She was one of the first people on the scene. There was a lady there that was holding the gentleman in her arms. She arrived there after that. She'd been on a bus and uh, visiting her children from out of town. She ran off the bus and went over there to see the, the gentleman, to check on him. She had learned first aid at some point in her life. She thought she might be of help. 
She had thought there was a car accident, but in reality, there had been an attack. Then all of a sudden, one of the terrorists, holding a bloody knife, stood before her. She selflessly engaged the terrorist in conversation. And she attempted to prevent him from killing other people. So here she is, this guy with a knife in his hand and a hatchet. Here she is talking to this guy just like you and I would talk to each other. And she was doing that all because she did not want him to kill another soldier or another person. She put her own self at risk. A Christian blog for, quote, first things, unquote, noted the real factor that motivated this woman to risk her life and get involved. It said it was her Christian faith. She said this, I live my life as a Christian. I believe in thinking about others and loving thy neighbor. Excuse me, yes, and loving thy neighbor. We all have a duty to look after each other. Isn't that something? I don't know what kind of Christian she I don't know what denomination. Who cares? <clears throat> what I know is this. She had a big heart because she had a relationship with the Lord. And she was willing to put her own life at risk to protect the lives of others. <clears throat> what risks are you willing to take in living for God? Serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Self-denial is seldom that dramatic. It's rarely that high profile, that's for sure. But it's always that demanding. We've taken just a few minutes to consider three ways to love God. We said, love God with your head. Learn of Him. Love God with your heart. Long for Him. And love God with your hands. Live for Him. <clears throat> Everything in the Christian life starts with the head, goes to the heart, and expresses itself with the hands. If at any point you learn something that doesn't become heartfelt, somewhere along the lines, your growth stops. If you hear it in the head, learn it in the head, it goes to the heart and you feel it, but you don't respond with your hands and live it, there's been a break again in your growth. Everything starts with the head, it's felt in the heart, expressed with the hands. And today, if we're going to truly love God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength, then it begins with the head, learn of me. It's felt in the heart as we long for him. And it's expressed with the hands as we live for him. <clears throat> Johann Sebastian Bach was born into the musical family of Bachs in 1685. By the age of 10, both of his parents had died. Early on in his life, he knew something of friction and conflict. But at that point, Johann determined he would write music, and that he would write music for the glory of God, and that's exactly what he did. Most of Bach's works are explicitly biblical. They're very biblical. Albert Schweitzer referred to him as the fifth evangelist, comparing him, obviously, to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. At the age of 17, Bach became the organist at the church. He soon was 
taking charge of the entire music program, as you can probably at this point at least uh, certainly imagine. During his ministry in Weimar, Germany, he wrote a new cantata, a new cantata, folks, every month. Every month. And during a one, uh, during one three-year stint or period of time, he wrote, conducted, orchestrated, and performed with his choir and orchestra a new cantata every week. We're not talking about one song. We're talking about, you know, we're talking about, you know, what's that one we do at Christmas time, Miss Smith? Cantata. What's it called, though? It's that one that you used to do. What's that? What is that thing called that everybody likes to go listen to and watch? The Hallelujah Court? Nah, not the chorus. It, it's the Messiah. Thank you, the Messiah. It includes the Hallelujah Court. Hallelujah Court is only one song. There's a number of songs. It's a cantata, basically. He wrote one of those every week and performed it. No one at that time had any idea the kind of legacy that Bach would leave. They didn't know. But we know that his legacy has outlasted his life. And 300 years, 400 years later, you can hear his music to this day. At the beginning of every authentic manuscript, you're going to find the letters J-J. That stands for Jesus Java. Jesus, help me. At the end of each original manuscript, you're going to find these letters, S-D-G. That stands for Soli Dio Gloria, to the glory of God. Listen, Bach's legacy is rooted in his love for God. Jesus, help me. To the glory of God. Wow. Everything he ever put together was rooted in his love for God. And may we ever learn, long, and live for our God the same way. And by doing so, truly impact our world for Christ as well. Let's make a difference today. Let's make a difference. Let's love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for all you've done for us.